Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of the e-commerce evolution podcast. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And today I've got a treat for you, man. This guest is a rock star. Uh, love hanging out with this dude. Love talking shop. Love talking strategy. Love talking investing. Love talking e-commerce. This episode of the e-commerce evolution podcast is brought to you by OMG Commerce. If you're selling a significant amount on Amazon and you're not running retargeting ads, you probably should be. Retargeting ads are not new for online marketers by any means. But if you're selling on Amazon, your retargeting options up to this point have been extremely limited. Enter Amazon DSP ads. If you haven't heard of Amazon DSP ads or if you're not taking advantage of them, you should probably listen up. Amazon DSP, stands for Demand Side Platform, allows you to run display ads on Amazon.com and across the web to woo back shoppers if they visit your product listings and do not buy. But it gets better. You can also target people who visit your competitors' products or similar ASINs and don't buy. And you can target them with display ads on Amazon.com and across the web. And those are just a few of the audiences you can build and target through Amazon DSP. So if that sounds interesting, you have two options. You can either work directly with Amazon, but their minimums are quite steep, often to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. Or you can work with an agency like OMG Commerce and potentially avoid those minimums. If you want to know more, visit OMG Commerce and click on the Amazon Advertising tab. And now... Back to the show. And if you listen to other e-commerce podcasts, there's a good chance you've heard my guest today before, uh, Mr. Bill D'Alessandro. He's the founder and CEO of Elements Brands, close friend of a mutual friend of ours, uh, Andrew Udarian, and then, and then Bill and I have since become friends as well. We got to hang out at an event in Miami recently that Steve Chu put on. We were part of a speaker mastermind. Then I was like, Dude, I got to get Bill on the podcast. Guys, wicked smart. And so, we're going to dive into several things on this podcast. Bill is is building uh, and growing a variety of brands. His company, Elements Brands, owns multiple brands. He's looking to expand that. So, lots of lessons you can learn from Bill on how to grow your own brand, how to value a brand, what to measure, what not to measure. There's all kinds of really good insights that I'm excited to dig into. And so, with that. Bill, welcome to the show, and, and thanks for making the time, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, bud. I'm looking forward to this. You're like an old podcast pro. Uh, when, you, when are you going to launch your own podcast? You know, I'm never going to launch my own podcast. <laughs> this is part of the strategy. I make you do all the work. I make you ask all the questions. I just show up and shoot off my mouth. It's nice. uh, I, I love it. It's really... And that's one thing I love about talking to Bill is he, he he's thinking strategically, loves being on podcasts, knows that his greatest strength isn't running one. It's getting on other people's podcasts and making it happen and, and yep. doing it that way, which is awesome. So let's talk a little bit about, I'd love to hear your background. And, and actually there's a few elements of this, uh, no pun intended, elements, brands, but a few elements that I don't know, like how did you get into e-commerce? And, and were, have you been an entrepreneur from like the time you were a little kid? Were you selling you know, lemonade and baseball cards or how, how'd you get into this? I was. I was very stereotypically selling baseball cards, lemonade, and airheads. I very specifically remember buying airheads in 
Airheads and warheads. The airheads, so tasty. I don't know so what those, but I used to sell them for a quarter piece on the bus <laughs> on the way home. What was your margin school. on that's some wicked margins. Pretty wow. good. It was pretty good. I mean, you know, I made like twenty bucks in fur at sixth grader. <laughs> it was incredible money. Rolling, man. Yeah. Yes, rolling. So yeah, I kind of always have had the bug. Uh, I had a business in college uh, called Groupvine. It was a it was an online group software, and this was kind of before Facebook groups and you know, all that. We ended up selling that business, not for a ton of money, but we did sell it. Um, so that was a win. And then I think it subsequently got crushed by Facebook groups and everything else that's happened group-wise on the internet since. Uh, and after that, it was I a went cool concept. Into, I mean, obviously that, that's yeah. a concept that made a lot of sense because Facebook and others are doing it. So yeah, it was a cool concept, but we were like three college idiots and really <laughs> had no chance at like <laughs> taking over the world with it. But yeah, yeah. it was fun. And what, one of those college idiots was not Mark Zuckerberg. So that puts you a little bit behind. That was a little bit of a disadvantage. Yes. I did not know Mark in college uh, or now. So then what, what was the transition into, into e-commerce? Why, why, why e-commerce? Uh, so I had, I heard a new term for this that I'm going to start using. I had an entrepreneurial aneurysm when I read the four hour work week, <laughs> it just yeah. knocked me on my ass. Um, yeah. I was working in investment banking at the time in finance and that's what you uh, Darian did too, right? Wasn't he a, a, a investment banker? Yeah. Right. That's how we became friends because okay. I later cold emailed him and said, we're both former investment bankers. Uh, I love your blog. Like we're both doing e-commerce. Essentially, we should be friends. And I said, like, let's have a phone call. <laughs> and that was it. I cold emailed him. It's a great value worked. prop. It's a really good, succinct. That's a good marketing message. You deliver that well. And, and it worked. You, you, it you worked. Close the deal. So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I read the four-hour work week while I was in finance. And there's an interesting story. I read it at this perfect time where I was in the finance, the part of finance I was in was sell-side M&A, which means we helped. Uh, entrepreneurs sell their businesses, uh, typically larger businesses, you know, kind of 5 million plus in annual profits. Um, and we had just sold this business. I want to close the name here while we're being recorded, but they made hand soaps and pita chips and things like that. Uh, and I learned that they had five employees. It was the founder and his wife and five sales guys. Wow. And the founder, not taking any away from him at all because he's a great entrepreneur, but he did not have a college degree and he was just winging it. And wow. we sold his business for like north of between 50 and $100 million. Uh, and I found out he, had, he was contract manufacturing everything. And I went, holy crap. Like if this guy can do it, I can definitely do it. Yes. yes. Uh, and then I read the four-hour work week and I was like, I'm freaking doing this, man. Uh, yep. Here we go. Um, so that was, that was how I got started. I uh, started awesome. kind of with one product, Nights and Weekends. Uh, that's a brand we still own today, KP Elements. Um, and that's the reason the business is called Elements Brands. Uh, and now we kind of, basically I, I built that business, quit my job, kind of did the whole digital nomad thing, traveled around, skied on Tuesdays, uh, et cetera. Uh, now, and why, then I why Tuesdays? Why did you select Tuesdays as the ski day or did you just make that up? I made that up, but like okay. basically my, my rule was, it was great because I was living in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Oh, at the time. Love Colorado. And it would snow, you know, it just kind of unexpectedly dumps snow and we would get like a huge, huge snow dump. And I'd be like, oh, go in the mountains. I would yep. and yep. ski. Not working, I mean. Yeah, awesome. it was awesome. That's um, fantastic. And so, man, your first, the first brand you started reading the five-hour work week inspired by this huge exit that you saw not overly sophisticated entrepreneur make. You're like, I I'm in. And but that brand, that brand you started KP Elements, you still have to this day. That's that's impressive. Because a lot of people really a lot of people start with a crash and burn. You know, it's say, hey, I'm gonna launch this idea and it goes nowhere. But it's the 
it's the door that then opens up the the real opportunity. But that that's really cool that that still is working today. It is, and I don't want to give the illusion that I'm perfect. I have crashed and burned plenty of times since then and simultaneously. Yeah, uh, yep. I got lucky the first time. Yep, and it, but it goes with it like that. That and that's some really the crash and burn is not something to even be avoided. Now the cra- the the ultimate crash and burn where you lose it all, yeah, avoid that. But the little crash and burn, like you can't fully avoid it. Don't even be afraid of it. Just be smart, and you know we'll kind of get into some of those those things as as we go here. But um, just to give people a little more context, uh, what is Elements Brands? What categories are you in? Uh, to describe that business a little bit. Yeah. So in summary, our business model is we acquire and scale consumer products companies. So we look for entrepreneurs and brands, uh, folks who have started a business and kind of scaled it to a certain point. And they, for whatever reason, they're getting burnt out. They don't have the energy to take it to the next level. They want to take their money off the table. You know, maybe they've been at it for 10 years and they don't know how to get it any bigger. They feel like the business has sort of outgrown their skill set. Any of these reasons would be reasons to sell your business. Uh, so we look for entrepreneurs who are in that situation. Uh, we acquire their brand from them. We give them a check. Uh, they cash out 100%. Uh, and we take over the brand. And we consolidate it into our operations. So I'm talking now from our uh, warehouse and distribution center and office here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have 51,000 square feet here, uh, awesome. 25 people here. Um, so we'll bring all of the inventory. You know, If the entrepreneur has employees, we have often retained uh, some of their employees, some remotely, and then sometimes they move here to Charlotte. Um, and then we will basically take our team of experts. So we have, you know, people who used to work at Amazon who are know the Amazon algorithm inside and out. We have Facebook traffic buyers, Google optimizers, you know, graphic designers, e-commerce designers, et cetera, here in-house. So we don't rely on a lot of agencies. We do a lot of our own work. Uh, so because we have some scale, you know, we can be really good at everything. Whereas if you're an entrepreneur, you know, as probably a lot of people listening are, and I am, you know, I remember when I was smaller, you know, I was kind of running around trying to be half-assed good at Facebook ads and half-assed good at Amazon and, uh, and projecting my inventory and managing my P&L and all this stuff. Uh, and there's just so many things to be good at and do that you can't be amazing at all of them. Yep, um, absolutely. And that, that's where you have that, that economy of scale that really gives you an advantage over just a single brand owner. Because for a lot of single brand owners, it, yeah, it doesn't make sense to, uh, so now I got to become a Facebook expert and a Google ads expert and SEO and supply chain. Like you can't do all that. Right. Typically. Right. So uh, totally makes sense. So uh, consumer products, uh, what, what categories are you in right now? And are there any categories you're looking to get in that you're not? Yeah. So we have a... Uh, I'm always, for the right opportunity, we'll always go into something new, but our primary focus areas, we have three of those. Uh, the first one is what we call personal care. So lotions and potions, anti-aging, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we also do pet. So pet treats, pet balms, pet topicals, shampoos, things like that. We stay away from pet food because it's really heavy. Uh, and then we also do household goods. So we own a laundry detergent brand called Rock and Green. Um, so anything in kind of those three areas, and you'll notice the similarities are that they're all branded, uh, they're all consumable, um, so we can have a repeat purchase type relationship with our customer, uh, and they're all kind of small, light, e-commerce compatible. You know, we're not trying to sell bicycles. Yep. Um, so those are the types of businesses we look for, and we now have ten brands in the portfolio today. That's awesome, man. That's awesome because yeah, I think when. When you and I first met, you may have been at just a couple or, or no more than five, I don't think, brands. So you, you've 
doubled or more in in a pretty short time period, which which is awesome. So uh, I, I think that there's a, a few angles that that will be really useful for people listening. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people that I talk to that are in the e-commerce game, they're looking for an exit. So they're building a business, they're building a brand, but with the goal of a big exit down the road, they exit now, they move on to their next thing. Perfectly viable way to to build wealth and and it's an awesome goal. Uh, there are some that that um, are burnt out. Like you said, they just want, just want to get out now. Uh, then there are others that that maybe they want to build it for the long haul. They want to keep it. Maybe, maybe, maybe one day they exit, but it's not really on the horizon. I think lessons, though, that you can give on how you value a business, um, some of the ways you grow a business will apply to all. So I think it'll, this will be super useful. Um, what are some of the things? So when you're evaluating an opportunity, you're looking at a business to buy, what are some of the things you're looking for? What What are some of the the, the flags that make you say, aha, this could be a great buy. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting that you kind of bucketed people out that way. The people who are trying to build to sell, the people that are kind of burnt out or the people that kind of never plan to sell. Mm-hmm. You know, we really look to buy businesses from the, the last two buckets. Yep. Um, so actually, one of the, the red flags for us is a brand that has clearly been built to sell. Um, and one of the ways we identify that is a short operating history. So we have sort of a, we occasionally might stretch this rule, but very rarely uh, is that we look for at least five years of operating history. Got it. Um, and the reason we look for that is because less than that, it's kind of hard to tell, you know, whether you actually have a brand, whether you have people coming back, whether you have brand recognition that people are telling their friends about, or whether you just kind of found an eddy in the search algorithm. You know, yep. or you were yep. really good at paid traffic. Or just crushed it at Facebook ads. I mean, that's what we're seeing yeah. a lot where brand goes from nothing to huge with Facebook ads and, and might not be sustainable. A lot of cases, it's not. Right. Because you don't actually have a brand. You're just very good at buying traffic. Yes. And that can, this, those sands can shift very quickly, as you know. Um, so we look for kind of five years of operating history. I see tons of businesses for sale with two and three years. There must be a bunch of business brokers out there telling people that once you hit two years of operating history, you can list your business for sale kind of midway through the third year. Um, but we kind of delete those out of hand because um, that is, I mean, that's a certain thing. And I wouldn't want to be left holding that bag uh, when, <laughs> when the sale makes sense. That. That makes sense. Do you also find that, that um, those that are building to sell and building for an exit, are, are they maybe making the wrong decisions as well? Are they maybe shortchanging things or, 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 propping up the financials, not, not, I'm not, you know, like in a legal way, but are they just doing, making some decisions that, that maybe aren't sound long-term? Yeah, it's really that they don't make decisions that pay off on a long time horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've almost never invested anything in SEO. Um, they, right, because that's a long game and they don't plan to be around. They yeah. invest very little in kind of brand positioning and how does the product resonate with the consumer because their product, their product resonates with a SERP or, you know, a certain type of traffic that they can buy, yep. you know, and then kind of secondarily with the people that happen to happen to be looking at those SERPs. But, you know, the best brands Search are- the results page, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Results that. page on Google or on Amazon. Yep. Um, and the best brands that last for a long time genuinely resonate with the customer uh, and they fill a need that the customer has, not a need the customer is searching for. Those are kind of two different things. Right. Because if you're searching for, like, let's say you're searching for pet multivitamin right now, right? That's the thing you're searching for, but you don't, it's very hard to make a consumer care which one, 
they're going to buy, right? They're going to buy the one that's kind of towards the top with most reviews. There's not really any brand loyalty there. I think that's a huge mistake that people often make. They conflate the fact that consumers are choosing their their product with the fact that consumers are choosing their brand and want it. Yeah. Because you'll, and if, if you ever want to know, just ask yourself if suddenly I ranked on the second page, would consumers click to the second page to find my brand and buy it mm-hmm. from a non-branded term? Yeah. That's how you know if you have a brand. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm assuming also on the, on the repeat purchase rate as well, right? That, that's another clear indicator on do I have yeah. a brand or do I just rank well? Have I figured out a way to, to play the marketing game a little bit better? Exactly. Yeah. So we look for a high repeat rate. And the other thing that immediately disqualifies businesses for us are ones that are entirely relying on Amazon. Um, because again, you've figured out how to rank on the search engine, you know, that is that is the biggest river of money kind of in e-commerce, but it's a it's a basically an SEO play. It is. Right. It's it's a different type of that of SEO play, but it's an SEO play. And yeah. someone else is gonna come on come along and play that game later. So if you can't demonstrate that your consumers are willing to engage with you and purchase directly from you uh, outside of Amazon, then I don't think you have a very strong brand. So any brand that does more than 50% of their revenue on Amazon, we wouldn't look at that. Got it. Got it. And that's not to say that, that a business that's doing more than 50% on Amazon is unhealthy. You know, you, you know there are probably some listeners here that are 70, 80% on Amazon, which is fine. But I think the lesson to be learned here is... I don't want to stay that way. And if you do ever want to sell, or just think about it from this perspective, the, the reason you have that as a criteria is because that's an unstable business. That's a business that's not um, positioned for the long haul. So if you're, if you're out of whack there, out of balance, shoot for closer to 50 to 50 um, would, would be a great goal. Right. And I think that's an important point because, you know, investors, buyers are always looking to minimize risk, Right. So as a acquirer of businesses, I'm looking to do a deal that is the least risky. And a business that is entirely saturated on Amazon is risky. The more you can own that relationship with the customer, it is less risky. Um, so I would feel safer about it as a buyer. Um, and if you are never, if you're not even considering to sell at all, recognize that even still, if you're highly concentrated on Amazon, you are taking a lot of risk. You're sort of rebuying your business every day. You should be evaluating, would I like to buy this business? How risky is this business? How can I de-risk this business? And a great way to do that is to diversify your revenue. Yep, because that's one thing. And, and, and uh, I love listening to Roland Frazier. Uh, I know Roland and, and love his podcast and stuff. But he talks about, you know, as you're looking to build revenue, you're looking to grow income and revenue for your business, for your store, that's great. But you should also look at how am I adding value? How am I adding to the value of the business? And there's some activities you could do, like buying Facebook ads or YouTube ads or Google, which, which you, YouTube and Google, that, that's like my bread and butter. That's what I do. Um, it's great. Grows income. But are you doing things on the back end to build the value of the business? And that's more about repeat purchases and building the brand and building assets that don't go away as easily like SEO and things like that. So uh, lo- love that perspective um, for sure. So, uh, so you look at, you know, it's got to have five years of history, you know, something where there's a high repeat rate, not entirely on Amazon or not, not north of 50% relying on Amazon. Other things you're looking for is you're looking for, Hey, this is a valuable business that we would be interested in. What, what else are you looking for? Yeah, we're looking for in the same way that we're looking for diversity and channel mix between Amazon and the dot com. Uh, on the dot-com side, we'd be looking at diversity in traffic sources. 
So we want to see that you're getting some traffic from paid, some traffic from organic, maybe some traffic from YouTube. You know, the, the more colorful that little pie chart looks of where your traffic is coming from, the better, because that means it's less risky. Um, so we're looking at diversity of traffic. We're also looking at an internal metric that we call revenue complexity. Uh, other people will call this revenue per skew. Uh, so revenue per skew. So if you've got, if you're doing a million dollars in sales with one skew, that is a very revenue simple business. That is a much easier business to run than, this, than another business with the same amount of sales that has 50 SKUs, right? Now that's 50 SKUs you got to project inventory for, have manufactured 50 different supply chains that could go wrong. Uh, et cetera. So we like to see kind of lower, all else being equal. Again, no business will hit all of these. Right. You know, it's sort of a scoring system. Yep. Um, so yep. these Makes are kind of hard and fast criteria. We compromise on these all the time. Um, but as you kind of, what goes into the GPA of how interested we are in a business, you know, one of them is all else being equal, fewer SKUs is better for the same amount of sales. Uh, ability to drive organic traffic, uh, diversity of traffic, um, we also look at how well documented your business is. Um, so basically if it all lives inside your head and you don't have standard operating procedures, uh, if you haven't written down how you run your business, you have a lot of what is called key man risk in investing. Uh, you are the key man, which means if you get hit by a bus, the business is screwed. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, or, or they, or someone buys you out and you're not willing to stay, then that there goes the business. Right. Or you forget to tell me something, you know, or your key employee quits. Uh, you don't have to be the key man. Sometimes an employee is the key man, mm -hmm. uh, the general manager. So if there's a lot of key man risk in the business, meaning there is a there's a key man or woman who has all of the knowledge all locked up in their head, you know that's risky. Um, let's see. I mean, those those are the major ones. Those are the main ones. Yeah, those are the main ones. Yeah, super helpful. And I think that what's so great about this, what's so great about this list, is as you look at. Hey, I need to diversify, diversify my traffic a little bit. That makes me more valuable to a, a purchaser of my business. Well, it's also healthy now and it's healthy long-term. You decide to keep the business, you're never going to regret being more yeah. diversified. You, you document your processes and procedures. Now you're insulated, you yourself, if you keep your business. You're insulated from losing that key person, that key individual. Uh, so that's what I love about this list is, is if you think about it, from the perspective of a buyer or an investor in your business, uh, even if you never plan to buy or bring on an, or sell or bring on an investor, it's going to make you better. It's going to make you better right now. Yeah, because investors want to buy good businesses, right? Yeah. <laughs> so turn your business into a good business, and it's exactly. a win-win. Exactly. What are some of the What are some of the metrics you look at um, when you're you know evaluating the health of your your existing brands, or it could be when you're looking to buy a brand, what, what are some of the metrics, some of the numbers you're looking at? And, and I kind of want to uh, do a comparison of what metrics really matter versus what are just vanity metrics, because I, I believe there's still a trend in the industry for us to focus on vanity metrics and kind of ignore or shortchange the really important stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I have, I want to use this opportunity to crusade for my favorite metric of all time. Yes. Okay, uh, not just also. in e-commerce, in any business. This is the metric. The metric. Uh, Dude, I got, I'm, ex I'm excited now. I'm like uh, edge of my seat here. This the is, metric. This is right, the right. metric. And you're, the other metric, the, the dark side of this metric that everybody tends to focus on is revenue, right? Yeah. Because it's easily reportable inside of Facebook ads. It's easily reportable everywhere, right? It's easy to see revenue and see your bar charts go up. Um, so everybody knows that revenue is kind of a vanity metric, right? 
Um, but then people will go, oh, well, you know, revenue is vanity and profits are sanity, right? But profits can be sometimes hard to measure in real time also. You know, it can take you because, you know, well, how do I bake in my salaries, my rent? You know, I don't know what those are till the end of the month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, profit in an accounting sense is, is not a very agile metric. You right. can't run your business on a day-to-day -day basis on profits. Yes. Um, so this is all the lead up to the metric that gives you the best of both worlds, mm -hmm. both easy to measure uh, and also quickly available. Um, and that right. measure, that metric is called contribution margin. Um, so this comes from my finance days. And every time, you know, I thought this was like generally accepted, you know, good business management. And like every time it comes out of my mouth, people are like, oh my God, really? Uh, so contribution margin is, another word for contribution margin is variable profit. So what you want to do is look at all of the expenses in your business that you incur every single time you make a sale. So in a classic e-commerce business, it's kind of walking down the P&L. You have revenue, right? And then every time you're going to incur a cost of goods, right? Obviously. Uh, yep. and, then, and then you have gross margin, right? But between gross margin and contribution margin, there's a lot of other variable things. Um, one we've kind of already touched on was paid traffic, right? You're going to pay a CPA, you know, a cost per acquisition on essentially every sale you get. Now, maybe not some of them are organic, right? But as your revenue goes up, typically your Facebook spend goes up yep, too. Yep. Uh, Amazon fees that, you know, for the most part scales with your revenue, right? Uh, affiliate fees. If you pay affiliates, um, Google ads, uh, shipping and postage, you know, you got to ship, especially if you're offering free shipping, right? But even if you're not, if you're recognizing the revenue up top, you got to recognize the shipping and postage. Uh, and then we also put in, cause we have in-house labor. We put in our, our people's labor to pack and ship the boxes. If you're doing a 3PL, you put your 3PL fees in here, your merchant processing fees, credit card processing fees. So everything you're going to incur every time you make a sale, put it in this metric. Things that you're not going to include is all your fixed costs, like your salaries of your graphic designer, uh, your salary yourself, your rent, um, any kind of one-time R&D fees you use to develop a product. You know, anything that kind of happens the same, whether you make one sale today or a million sales today, don't include it because that's a fixed cost. So then what you end up with is metric contribution margin. Uh, and this is basically the amount of money, and it's called contribution margin because that's the amount of money that contributes to your fixed expenses, to covering your fixed expenses. So contribution margin minus fixed expenses equals your profit. Um, but contribution margin, if you just track it for a couple months, what you'll figure out is that it's not going to move around that much. It's basically a fixed percent of revenue. Um, probably, you know, in a, in a good business, it'll be 50% of revenue. You know, in a tough business, it'll be 20% of revenue. Um, so somewhere in there, so you'll know my contribution margin is 40%, let's say. So I know that if I think I earned hundred bucks in revenue, you're just immediately, every time you see a revenue number, you're going to multiply it by 0.4 in your head. Once you know what this rate is, you can then apply it anywhere revenue is reported. And you just know it and update your assumption like every month or two, recalculate and then go, oh, it's actually 0.35 or it's actually 0.45, right? But always know. So every time you see revenue, you just multiply it by your contribution margin rate. And now your ROAS looks totally different. If you're getting a 1.1 ROAS return on ad spend, right? You might go, well, great. I'm making more than I've spent on advertising. No, because you have costs there. So yep. if you multiply your 1.1 times 0.4, right, you go, oh, that's not very good at all. Right, uh, right. And it'll give, and you'll, it'll let you know everything you do. It will help you understand whether it's profitable or not.
Uh, so that is, and we track CM by brand and by channel. So we have a different CM in Amazon than we do on our .com than yep. we do wholesale. And you can get really complicated with ways you apply it, but at the simplest level, contribution margin, also known as variable profit, will set you free. And that's that my soapbox. is that. amazing. So do you have specific ranges you're looking for when you're, when you're evaluating a business to buy? Like you want the contribution margin to be X? Or is it one of those things where you feel like, hey, the contribution margin is X, but I could restructure a few things and get that to Y. I know, I know once you kind of get it set, it's set, but, but there are some adjustments you can make. Um, yeah. What are you looking for? Yeah, so contribution margin is kind of a, I'll call it a heavy metric, right? It can be hard to move, right? Because mm-hmm. you've got typically, in order to move the contribution margin, you have to get demonstrably better at something. You have to renegotiate with your supplier and save some margin. You have to get better at buying, buying traffic on Facebook. You have to get better at rate shopping and shipping you know, packages and spending less money. So it can be hard, but even a couple percentage points right. really right. move the needle Game changer. Uh, yeah. in contribution margin. Uh, so as far as what is good, the best businesses have a contribution margin north of 40%. Okay. Uh, great businesses are north of 50%. Um, it can be hard to find. Um, but I would say shoot for 40%. Uh, if you shoot for 40%, you've probably got about another 20% as overhead and you put 20% of revenue in your pocket just okay. as a as a back of the envelope measure. As a general rule. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Contribution margin. Write that down. If you didn't fully get that, back up the podcast. Listen again. It'll sink in. That was that was really awesome. Uh, other other metrics. So that's the metric to rule all metrics. Yes. Um, what other metrics are important to you? Um, so to be honest, we have pivoted the entire business and we look at everything. So think in a in a contribution margin lens. So think about like Facebook ROAS, right? Um, we're looking at it on a contribution margin basis, not a revenue return on ad spend. When you think of, you ever look at revenue per visitor, which is a great metric, yep. which not a lot of other people use. Mm-hmm. So instead of looking at revenue per visitor, look at contribution margin per, per visitor. Yeah. It will change your whole life. Well, so the like, beauty of that, the beauty of that is, and I know this is where you're going, but you you can quickly spot my cost per visitor in this channel is just never going to work. Right, yeah. right, and it might look fine from a revenue point of view, but right. then it, sometimes it's very upsetting when <laughs> when you put that CM lens on you. Oh my god. I'm yeah. losing money. You know, <laughs> nothing is working. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so anywhere there's a revenue metric, you know, put a, a CM lens on it and it'll make it so, a, so much more of a useful metric. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, what, is, what are some of the vanity metrics that you don't really pay attention to um, that, that you hear people talking about a lot and you say, yeah, well, it could be good, maybe not? Followers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on social media. <laughs> for sure. For yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I mean, especially because, now that you have to, you have to pay to play, you know, uh, yeah. good following on, on Instagram or Facebook. If you're not paying for traffic, you're missing most of it anyway. Yeah. Here, here's another vanity metric that uh, most people may not think of. Uh, retail partners and number of doors. Uh, mm-hmm. We looked at a business that was in, God, I think they were in 10,000 retail doors. Okay. With a couple big names, like not Target, but something like that. Yeah. Um, so some big retail brands, like 10,000 doors. And I think they were doing a million in sales. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and you can imagine the complexity also that comes with serving and cost. Managing that, that many partners. Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, I hate to keep banging this drum, but what we did is we looked at the contribution margin on that customer, how much revenue they were bringing in, what was the gross margin? Cause they were, they had negotiated a discount, obviously large big box chain. Uh, what was all the, all the costs associated brokers and reps and, and everything about being in that channel. And we realized that that customer was contribution margin dollar negative. Wow. And they were actually losing money being in this large big box retailer. Um, and now sometimes you do that on purpose because you view it as marketing or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's right. some strategic things to, to look at. And I know you and I were talking about this offline about one of your brands. And you know, when you're reaching cold traffic and you've got, a, you've got a business where you do have a consumable and you kind of know your LTV, yeah, you're maybe just looking to break even or, or maybe lose a tiny bit on that first, you know, your, your cold traffic efforts. But you still, you have to know, like you have to know the numbers. Right, right. So it's very easy to get seduced by, oh, they're in Target or, oh, yeah. you know, whatever. They're nationwide retail. 10,000 doors, yeah. Yeah, a lot of those businesses are a lot smaller than you think. Yep, totally makes sense. Uh, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about growth. So uh, what are some of your favorite levers to pull? So you, you take over a brand, a brand you're really excited to get into your portfolio. What are some of the first things you usually do to, to grow rapidly with that brand? Uh, so... Pay traffic is one, and I hate to bring that up because that's really dangerous and it's like playing with fire. And sometimes we lose our ass, to be totally frank. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you can find a paid traffic vein and mine it, that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other levers we pull is email. We find almost every brand that we ever see is not emailing enough. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're not emailing twice a week, at a minimum, you're not emailing enough. Uh, and if you're not doing any segmentation, if you're not doing any post-purchase, if you're not doing, you know, all of this stuff that you can go on Clavio's website or to their conference and learn about, uh, if you're not doing that stuff, you're leaving tons of money on the so table. So much money. Yep. So yep. much money. Uh, more so than interesting you- how, how, and I've had uh, a buddy of mine, Austin Bronner, on the show a couple of times to talk email mm-hmm. marketing. And it's one of those things that I remember probably seven or eight years ago, people talking about, yeah, you know, email is going to die. Email is going away. You know, th- these kids today, they don't, they don't get on email. Man, emails, it's changed. It's definitely shifted gears, but it is still so profitable and people still have to use email for work and all these things. And so, totally. man, if you're not doing all the, yeah, the, the post-purchase sequence, the abandoned card sequence, all your triggered emails, and, and then emailing a couple times a week, like you mentioned, yeah, you're leaving tons of money on the table. Yeah, and, and emails, you know, also email is kind of close cousin, which is uh, custom audience retargeting on Facebook. Based on your email list. Yep. yep. Um, you can send me on Google too, by the way. Yep. YouTube. You and- can. Yep. You can do YouTube and Google, um, which I know you're a pro at. Um, yeah. But yeah, we do great. I mean, it, like we see brands doing retargeting based on website visits or, uh, you know, likes or something. And if you just upload that custom audience, you get a much better result on your retargeting. Um, and then if you set that up, like I hate to keep banging the Clavio drum again, but as people so they are great. List, yeah, yeah. you can set it up to sync that email list as a custom audience perpetually over into Facebook. So it's mm-hmm. always updating. So you're yep. always doing really good retargeting. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not available on, on Google at the time of this recording. I know they're working on, there is one ESP, one email service provider that does have a direct integration with, with yeah. Google. So you can get the constant updates, but there'll be more. I'm sure Clavio is going to be on the, roadmap at some point. Uh, that'll be awesome when that happens. That will be awesome. I'm sure Clavio will launch it yeah. shortly because yeah. uh, leaving the... Is, Facebook, is Google the largest ad network in the world? Probably. Oh, yeah. Question. In terms of uh, yeah. dollars spent, yeah. Yeah. Google's Google's number yeah. one. Facebook's number two. Amazon's number three. How crazy is that? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, that's the other thing we do often to help brands do better is optimize their Amazon. Uh, they're not either not doing Amazon PPC very well, or frankly, their listings aren't optimized. They don't have really good pictures. They don't have good copy. Uh, they're not sending post-purchase kind of review emails, you know, asking for those reviews, just basic Amazon best practices. We have had some major successes just being good at Amazon. Uh, and this isn't stuff that I know that people don't. It's, you know, you can learn all this on the internet. It's yeah. so, I mean, really what we do is we implement best practices. Yeah. You know, at scale. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's so interesting. And I, and I uh, this is fresh on my mind and I talk about this a decent amount in, in the podcast, but I, I coach basketball and this week my team is going to camp and I brought in another coach, a guy that's, that's a real coach, honestly. I'm, I'm a business guy, but uh, this, this guy coached college, played college. And so as he's coming in, I mean, he's teaching the same stuff that I could teach or anybody else could teach, but it's a fresh perspective and he's going deep on the fundamentals. And it's like, okay, Yes, you need to be strong when you dribble, but here's why. And here's what that really looks like, right? And, and so then yeah. it's like, oh, geez, I've been dribbling soft. And like, that's why I'm getting my pockets picked, you know, on the court. And so right. uh, it's one of those things where I think that's what you guys are doing as well. It's a lot of the fundamentals, but you're really good at the fundamentals. And you come in and you just blow it up with that. Yeah, no one's inventing new fundamentals of basketball, right? It's no, just it's a matter no. of doing it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, maybe yeah. Steph Curry kind of altered the game with the way he shoots threes and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's still yeah. the it's stuff that's always been there. It's just are you are you uh, fully utilizing it? So totally. Um, what are some? We were talking about this kind of before we hit record. What are some of those under leveraged or overlooked methods for growth? Because because you, you guys are good at doing like all the stuff that grows a business, right? But what are some of the things that people ignore, overlook, forget about? Here's something that is super unsexy, uh, but we've actually had great results with, uh, and that's the telephone. Uh, we have a brand. The what? I'm sorry, the, the what? Uh, the telephone, the old telephone. Yes, the dial tone telephone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we have a brand. Uh, it is an anti-aging cream, generally older demographic. Does... 30% of its revenue on the telephone. Crazy. Um, these ladies Crazy. call us and order every yep. single month. And when we ask them, we would love to get you on our email list. They don't have an email address. <laughs> they don't have one. I mean, I'm telling you, huge number of people. Uh, it's like you assume everybody has a checking account. That's also not true. Yeah. Um, like people That's don't funny. have email. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, and and so think about are. that. For, for a lot of businesses, like you lose 30% of your business. There goes the business. Like that's it. Totally. Yeah. So we, we bought this brand and we were like, excuse me, what? We have to open a call center. Uh, and they were like, yes, you do. You have to open a call center. And so we have. Um, and we, have, we put that phone number prominently on the website. Uh, we run some click to call ads. We've had trouble getting big volume on that. But the phone number on the website, people, they can browse the web, but they want to call. Uh, and sometimes they don't, it's because they don't trust the internet. They don't want to key in their yep. Yep. credit card number, yep. uh, which is sort of ironic because we just key it into the internet, you know, as they read it to us <laughs> because it's all cloud hosted. You're, right? you're the expert at work in the internet, not, not them. So they, they don't yeah. need to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, we do 30% of revenue on the phone. I mean, other brands less, but I mean, if you can make your revenue going up by, go up by 10% by putting a phone number on the website, you should do that. Yeah, and here's what's interesting. And so, so did the so that brand that you purchased, and the owners were like, "Hey, gotta have a call center because you're gonna need it." Did that then kind of open your eyes to, well, let's test it with this other. This other brand is a younger demo, but let's test it. And and we actually had a really interesting conversation about this too, because I think uh, a lot of people may be like, "Oh, okay, well, I don't serve that older demo, so I, I don't need it." 
But I think there's some other criteria you can look at that can make you say, you know, I, you're probably missing opportunities if you're not on the phone. So when, when, else, when else are you seeing the phone be an important uh, tool for closing more sales? Yeah, so some of our other brands that are even targeted at much younger, even millennial age demographics see a double-digit percentage of revenue on the phone, mm -hmm. uh, primarily when the products are a complicated choice mm -hmm. where you might be selling a couple different alternatives that are somewhat similar. Uh, and your website, no matter how good it is, sometimes people want to be reassured. They want to talk yep. through their yep. choice. Talk, talk, talk it through with an expert. Exactly. Um, so anytime somebody might want to talk it through with an expert, uh, we also see a higher phone percentage when uh, folks are buying for a child uh, or buying for a pet uh, because they really want to make the right decision because they're not getting feedback from the pet or the child. Uh, and also they love the pet or the child often more than themselves. Uh, so they want, really want to make a good choice, you know, and they don't want to put their pet or child at risk. Um, so they're going to want to talk to an expert before making a, a purchasing decision. Uh, so any any of those, uh, if you yep. have kind of high consideration purchases, the, uh, the higher the stakes, the more people are going to want a phone number. Yep. And I think that, and I love the way you put that high consideration or the higher the stakes. And, and that could mean really expensive. It could mean really complex or it could just mean kind of emotional. Like you talked about, where's this is yeah. for my kid, this is for my pet. Like they, they mean more to me than almost anything else. I want to get this right. So I, it doesn't matter that it's expensive. That's not important. It's that, yeah, I want it to be right. And so I want to talk yep. to somebody. So yep, exactly. um, has that been a challenge managing the call center and you know, giving them scripts and stuff like was there was there a decent learning curve to that or has that been pretty smooth? Uh yeah, I mean there's a learning curve to Facebook ads too, right? <laughs> or whatever. Sure, yeah. Um so yeah, a little e bit in general. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so yes, there is, but uh and we've gone through a couple call centers. Um, but when we kind of we found the one that we liked. And we, ha we have kind of a hybrid model. So we have two people here in Charlotte who are tier two customer service. Um, and then they manage the call center as though the call center were their employees. Um, so they have like a weekly meeting with the call center, phone meeting with the call center. Yep. Yep. You know, what are you guys seeing this week? Uh, and then we've also specifically asked the call center. Some call centers will say, we have 500 people, right? So there'll always be someone to answer your phone call. Um, and you go, great, but actually that's terrible because you've only trained like five of them on your brand. Uh, so the problem is like, you know, if you have more than five concurrent phone calls, it's going to roll to someone. They're going to be like, thanks for calling. Oh, and they have like check their list. Yeah. Right? <laughs> See? And so there, and there'd be a terrible experience. So what we said is, you know, we trained five people and we said, after that, don't roll it to the pool, send it to voicemail. You know, we'll call them back. Um, you guys call them back. Um, but we don't want them to have a bad experience, a uh, bad customer service experience. Uh, and then we also allow, like when you call in, it'll say press one to, pl to place an order, uh, press two for customer service on existing order, uh, and the place an order gets routed uh, to our team um, who can give them a high-touch sale and is also yep. trained in upsell, cross-sell, all the stuff you do digitally. You yes, can do that yes. yep. uh, and that's old school. I mean, you can read books about that on yep, paper. Yep. <laughs> How to do Absolutely. verbal upsell, cross sell. Uh, and then if it's, you know, customer support, you know, I need, where's my package, all that stuff, press to call center. Uh, and then the call center can transfer it back to our in-house people uh, if yeah. they need. But. I love that. I love that model. So you've got two people that are level two support, that are on staff, they're your employees, but it is a, I mean, it, would, it felt daunting as I was just kind of listening to you before you explained that. 
of, man, do I have to, I have to build a call center, hire a call center? So that, that totally makes sense. You're partnering with a call center. You've got two employees that manage that process. They also take the inbound leads that are looking to be sold so you can cross-sell and upsell. Mm-hmm. You have the five trained people at the call center. If they are all five on calls, goes to voicemail, no rollover to a pool where someone's inexperienced. Uh, that, that seems doable. Like that seems like something yeah. you can handle. It, it's really not bad. And then so what we do is we started off, we were doing almost everything, right? Our in-house, there was only one at the time. She was doing everything. And gradually I said, okay, the call center is your employee. You train them to do everything you do. Mm-hmm. So she gradually trained them how to log into ShipStation and check the status of a tracking number. She gradually trained them just like you would train a VA, you know, or yep. an outsourcer. Yep. But she is continually outsourcing her job mm-hmm. to the call center. And like we're, we're actually training the call center now on cross-sell and upsell, which That's they cool. haven't been able to do before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you get there. It's a process. Very cool. So let, let's talk just maybe about a couple things here. And th- this could be an entirely different podcast. And so we, we may want to just do that. But I know, uh, you know, you led, you led the podcast by talking about the four-hour work week. And, and I'm a I'm big Tim Ferriss fan. I love his podcast. It's so good. I've actually never, confession, never read the four-hour work week. I've kind of... Uh, listen to synopsis of and stuff, but uh, no, fantastic book. But you've then in, in recent years, you've been un four hour work weeking <laughs> business by yeah. bringing in staff. And now you've got, uh, what is it, you know, high 30s, 40 uh, employees, something like that. Yeah. Um, where for, for the e commerce store owner who's maybe just thinking about hiring an employee, or maybe they got one or two, but they're considering building a team. Uh, what tips would you give? And, and primarily, like, who would you hire first? What to, what to think about? You know, any, any encouragement along the lines of, of building out a team? Yeah. Um, I mean, like you said, I'm, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see behind me uh, my office. I mean, I come into the office real every office. day. Yep. You're in an office, real Is office? You? Yep. 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 Um, so I kind of went from virtual to office in 2015. So it's been about four years now. Uh, and in that time, we've grown from two people to uh, almost 40 people. Uh, and the hardest ones were the first ones because it yes. was a huge yes. leap of faith. Um, not only a huge leap of faith, a huge leap of paperwork to get set up with the state no doubt. and everything. No doubt. Um, and I think I tell entrepreneurs, they're saying, you know, I think I want to hire my first employee, uh, but I don't know what, you know, which one, who to hire, you know, mm-hmm. what they'll do. Uh, I say an easy way to get started is to make a pie chart of your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, sit down at the end of each day and just say, what percentage of my day did I spend doing, you know, whatever, paid traffic, SEO, customer service, you know, whatever. Uh, and over time, you'll develop even just for a week or two, you know, it doesn't have to be that long. You'll understand where you're spending your time. And you can use a tool like Rescue Time or Harvest or something like that to track this, uh, give yourself some data. And then just look at the biggest wedge. And then it might be tempting to just say, oh, the biggest wedge is customer service. I'm going to outsource that. Um, That's one way to go. Um, But you also might look at, you know, maybe the second biggest wedge is paid marketing or something. Um, And you're doing it all yourself. And then you got to ask, how am I going to solve that wedge? I can either hire an agency, you know, or maybe I think I want to have my fingers in this a little bit more. Maybe I could train someone up. Um, I'm going to bring wedge number two, and I'm going to keep customer service on my plate a little longer because you know what? That's what the founder does. You suck it up. Like people, the people that try to get too sexy too soon are the people that fail. Yep. Uh, yep. So like 
you sometimes you got to suck it up and you got to do the thing totally you don't right. want to do for totally longer, right. even longer than you thought you were going to have to. And maybe you make the decision to sentence yourself again to even one more year of it because you're going to instead hire a marketing person yeah. and train them in marketing. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing people go is they go, well, I only spend 30% of my time on marketing, right? And this new person has 100% pie chart. Like, what are they going to do the other 66% of the time? And it's really tempting to go, I know what they'll do. I'll give them the customer service. Marketing, <laughs> right? yeah, marketing and customer service. They can do it. I did it. They can do it. Yeah, Exactly. And then you fill up their wedge with pieces or their pie with pieces out of your pie. Uh, and the problem is that if you do that, they will never get good at anything. Yes. Um, yes. Because you, you're the entrepreneur, right? You're kind of special, right? You've yep. been juggling all the balls. Um, but if you give all the balls to somebody else who doesn't know how to juggle, they're just going to drop all of them. And juggling is really hard to learn. Yes. Uh, harder than marketing. And it feels natural. It feels like everybody should be able to do that um, when you're an entrepreneur, but but it's not the case. And it's just different when it's not your business, right? You're you're extremely motivated to learn how to juggle if you're not already juggling naturally. Uh, an employee you hire is not going to be good at that. Right. And and so the biggest risk is you got to give this employee, right? If you don't if you know they can't juggle, you got to give them 30% and you got to go, currently we're only doing 30% of the day. What is the other 66% that I can do that I need to push them into that they can do that, that we're not doing that will ultimately help us grow. But probably in the meantime, I'm going to be eating their salary, yep. right? You've yep. got to hire ahead, which is the scariest part. Because uh, most people, no matter how good they are, are just not effective for three months. Yep. I mean, if, yep. if Brad, if you hired me in your business, I'd be terrible for three months. Yeah. Even though you're a crazy smart dude and you know business, it would, it would take a little bit of time to get acclimated and learn the details and then, and then be productive to the point where you're actually uh, turning a profit. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. And, and I know you've experienced this too. Um, in the beginning, when you first start building a team, you're going to make mistakes. It's going to be a headache. It's going to cost you some money. But in the end, once you have a really good team, the freedom that that brings is unbelievable. The ability to, to scale that that brings is unbelievable. Um, and, and a scenario that you can't really ever have if you're, if you're just outsourcing everything. You can't. There's uh, for the for the readers in the group. If you will Google the top idea in your mind, is an essay by Paul Graham of Y Combinator. Uh, you'll read it in 60 seconds. It's not long. Essay might be generous. It's a blog post. <laughs> uh, but basically, it, it posits that uh, any one of us can only have one idea that is the top idea in your mind, and mm. you know that's the thing that you have epiphanies about while you're driving to work or while yep. you're in the yep. shower, and you go, "Holy crap!" You know the thing that you're thinking about when you're not thinking about it. Mm. And for us entrepreneurs, it's our business. Yep. Uh, for outsourcers, guess what? It's not your business, it's right? If you're outsourcing, it's their business. It's their outsourcing business <laughs> or it's their boss who's being tough on them or whatever, yep. or it's their hobby that they have in Singapore wherever, or wherever they are, right? Yep. Yep. They got yep. other things. They're not having epiphanies about your business. But the cool thing about full-time employees is the top idea in their mind is your business yes. because they yes. do it full-time in person with you all day, every day. So yep. they have epiphanies about your business on their own time. And that's crazy powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I think we should do so. So you spoke at Steve Chu's event in Miami on building a team. And, and I, I love listening to it. There's a decent amount of crossover, like a lot of things you guys are doing, we're doing, but there's definitely some new things. So we had, we had a plan. We had to do a podcast coming up where we talk just about how Elements Brands has built their team, how MG Commerce has built this team. I think, I think that could be yeah. useful for a lot of people and, uh, and a lot of fun. So uh, awesome. Well, well Bill, we're, we're up against time. This has been 
a ton of fun uh, building, uh, showing people how to build value, how to measure value. Uh, if you had nothing else, contribution margin, uh, the metric to rule all metrics, start figuring that out for sure. Uh, and it sounds like, hey, you guys are growing. So Elements Brands, you guys are looking for more opportunities. So hey, if you know somebody wanting to sell or maybe you're in that category of, hey, I, got, I did build my business for the long haul, but I'm kind of tired of it. Um, maybe consider reaching out to Bill. So anything you would add to that? And then how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. I mean, everybody, when I do these, everybody asks me, you know, do you have anything to promote or whatever? And I say, the thing I have to promote is Elements Brands. If you want to sell your business, uh, I mean, I've just spent an hour laying out our criteria. So if, you, <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening and you fit the criteria uh, and, you want to, and you've thought about selling your business, uh, give us a call or uh, send me an email. We're at elementsbrands.com. There's a form you can fill out. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter at BillDA. Awesome. Bill D, bringing it, man. Rocking the house. Really appreciate the time, buddy. And we'll do this again soon. I'll link to your site and everything in the show notes. So really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Yeah, thanks, Brad. It's great hanging out with you, man. Awesome. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. What would you like to hear more of? We'd love that five-star review on iTunes. That helps other people find the show as well. And so with that, until next time, thank you for listening. At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.